I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part one in our series, What We Believe and What We Do Because We Believe It. What does Van City believe about God, humanity, the Bible, or the church? How does our church answer difficult questions about what makes someone a Christian or about divisive topics like sin or sexuality or hell? The entire conversation begins with God. Before Van City ever gathered on a Sunday, before there were any communities or any staff other than me, just days after, this is not a, a joke or, or exaggeration, just days after the idea of a church plant had been announced to anyone, I got a letter that I would receive again and again over the years. Where can I read your doctrinal statement? Or something more like, where is your church's statement of belief? And honestly, that letter has never bothered me. Really, I get it. In the haze of the American politicized evangelicalism on one side of the spectrum and the sort of deconstructed progressive post-evangelicals on the other, as the term Christian is routinely redefined at the behest of evolving cultural and individualistic and political sensitivities, what do you guys believe is more than a reasonable question. It's crucial. A couple of weeks ago, I had a conversation with a young man who described himself as a Christian, though he did not believe that Jesus was God or that Jesus was raised from the dead. He rejected the idea of any objective, exclusive truth. Truth is what you make it, he said to me. He was not active in any church or faith community at all, but he claimed to value the Eucharist, his words, what we call the Lord's Supper, and he enjoyed the occasional Catholic confession. And he said, we're the same you and me. We're both Christians. Are we? And so, years ago, the overseers of Van City Church sat down in one of our monthly meetings, and we agreed. We do need a statement of faith. We need a, a creed. We need a confession or doctrine. But I told them we would need the time and the space to walk our church through each of those core pillars from the foundational precepts about God and salvation and the Bible all the way to the controversial implications on divisive topics like sexuality or gender. So tonight we begin that series and that set of practices, what we believe and what we do because we believe it. The plan for the next few weeks is to journey through what will be our church's doctrinal statement together as a family, and with each week of teaching, we'll translate doctrine into practice by inviting each of you as individuals, as families, and as communities to update or begin for the very first time your rule of life and what will eventually become our church rule of life. Now, if you're new to Van City or the idea of rule of life, it is an evolving set of scheduled spiritual disciplines appropriate for your season of life and stage of discipleship. It's sort of an outline for when and how you pray or rest or fast or how you practice generosity specifically in community and on down the list. Now, before we get into all this, let me show you something that I'll hopefully bring up again and again. This is something that we call the Pyramid of Theological Disagreement. If you've been through our basics class, this is something that we teach right away. In theory, this is something given to us by uh, Dr. Gary Brashears at Western Seminary. 
At the very top of the pyramid, you have the die for category. These are the core tenets of the faith for which you would willingly give your life in theory rather than denounce things like Jesus is Lord or Jesus was raised from the dead or, you know, the core confessions that make one a Christian in the first place. Below that is the divide for category. Now, these are matters of sort of method, belief, practice that they're still within the realm of Orthodox Christianity, but because they're so different, they will eventually necessitate different expressions of community. The easiest uh, example is the difference between Catholicism and Protestantism. Both Christians, but we express our beliefs and values differently, and so we divide. I don't realize that word. It's kind of a bad word, but we actually have different expressions of church because of it. Below that is the debate for a category. Now, these are issues that you don't have to divide over. You don't need a unique expression of church. You can have the same people in the same body that disagree, and it invites healthy, strong debate and arguing in a sort of good-natured way as you work out what you believe together. Um, things like the nature of providence or the rapture, that kind of stuff. Below that is the decide on category. These are the nearly inconsequential points of disagreement. Things like how old should kids be when they're in the gathering. If you, you know, I, I don't care. They can sit in here if you want them to. They can go downstairs if you want them to. You decide. It's up to you. Now, the problem with at least uh, a sort of American expression of evangelical Christianity is the annoying habit to push everything up to the top of that category. So you end up with people saying things like, you know, the age of the earth is an issue with the gospel at stake. I disagree personally. I think it belongs a little lower on the paradigm. And anything and everything, people will throw around that expression, like the gospel is at stake. Um, when we can, without compromising orthodoxy, without compromising what we believe as disciples of Jesus, those core tenets of the faith and what makes us Christians in the first place, the best thing that we can do is push things down the pyramid so that we can have unity and agreement where there's agreement and grace where there's disagreement. Does that make sense? Great, thank you. Now, all of this, all of that, all of what we believe and how we live as a result begins with God. A few weeks ago, I got a letter from a young man that read, I'm going to quote him, Josh, I would really love if you'd engage with this question. Do you think you would have been Muslim if you, have been born, if you had been born and raised in Islamic culture? Would I? Had I been born in, say, Indonesia, would I be Muslim? If I had been raised in Utah, would I be Mormon? Could I have been a Japanese Buddhist or an Indian Hindu? If I was born to Portland hipster Wiccans in 2023, would I be, you know, worshiping a tree two decades later? Why do we believe in God if we believe in God? Is God nothing but the result of upbringing and culture and environment? Is God like the wind, invisible but undeniably present? Is God a figment of human imagination, the hopelessly wishful thinking born of freak accident of consciousness? Did God create humanity or did humanity create God? In what do we believe when we believe in God? Is there one God that renders all others false or is God what you make him? Open to interpretation. Does God, whatever he, she, or it is, show up in one religion or sort of in all of them or in none of them? And why is it that 
for thousands and thousands of years, all of human history, from primitive peoples to tonight in 2023, amongst the ignorant and learned, isolated tribes on obscure islands and university professors and cultural hubs, why have people believed in, reached for, argued about, and grappled with God? Maybe you've heard arguments for God's existence, the moral argument that C.S. Lewis argues so beautifully in his book, Mere Christianity, or maybe the cosmological argument, or the ontological argument, or the five ways of Thomas Aquinas. However you get there, most, I'm going to go out on a limb here, most, maybe even all of you in this room believe that God exists. But this is not a sanctuary dedicated to the theoretical existence of God, nor is this a church of God's theoretical concept. We believe in God with radical specificity, and we believe this specific God has made himself known to human beings. So, if God has somehow spoken definitively to humanity, how would he do that? Dr. Jonathan Gottschall, author of The Storytelling Animal, argues that now we know from neuroscience that human beings have always understood themselves and the world through the vehicle of story. We are, as a species, he says, addicted to story. Even when the body goes to sleep, the mind stays up all night telling itself stories. Now, watch this. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. First verse in the first book. The entire story of the Bible begins like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, turn all the way to the right in your Bibles to the very last chapter in the Bible. Revelation 22. And when you get there, read with me from Revelation 22, verses 4 and 5. As the epic narrative of the Bible comes to a close, we read this. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The Bible is a story with a beginning and an end. And it's God's story. In fact, it's often called the Word of God. But watch this. John, one first century biographer of Jesus, begins his biography of Jesus like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. God's story is the word, and Jesus of Nazareth is what God has to say. And maybe that seems like a twist, but really it's consistent with the story that opens in the beginning and ends with they will reign forever and ever. But the Bible is unique. The Bible is not the Quran. That is a different story about, the Bible, about God. The Bible is not the Book of Mormon or the Hindu Bhagavad Gita or the Buddhist Pali. The Bible tells a story about God that claims all other stories about God are not the true story of God. So what differentiates the Christian understanding of God from any and all 
others. The other theistic religions of the world were all founded by someone who claimed to have unique insight about God or a direct revelation from God. But Jesus of Nazareth claimed to be God. All four first century biographies written or corroborated by eyewitnesses document this fact that Jesus claimed to be God without subtlety. And we know from ancient writings that Jesus' first and earliest followers understood this to be so, that Jesus claimed to be God. In fact, the Alexamenos Graffito, which is a piece of vandalism found scratched in plaster, as early as the first century, is likely the earliest known image of Jesus or of the Christian movement at all. The image mocks an early Christian, genuflected in worship before a man on a cross with the head of a donkey. And the inscription reads, Alexamenos worships his God. Now, Jesus of Nazareth was a real person of history. On this, the scholarship, whether it's secular or Christian, uniformly agrees. Historians all agree that Jesus was an actual person of history who lived and taught in the first century, that he was said to perform miracles, that he was crucified as an enemy of the state, and that he claimed to be God, as did his earliest followers. Now, of course, there were and are many people who are warm to the teachings of Jesus, but less fond of the Christian religion. And to this, C.S. Lewis famously argued his trilemma. Jesus claimed to be God. If he knew he wasn't, he couldn't have been a good teacher. He was a liar. If he thought he was God, but he wasn't, he was a lunatic. Also not a good teacher, just to be clear. Or option three, Jesus was telling the truth, and thus he was a good teacher, but he was also much more. The question of Christianity's uniqueness is really vested in this incredible paradox of history. Why did anyone come to believe that Jesus' claims were true? Now remember, this is hard for us to understand as Western individuals in the modern world, but Jesus' first followers were first century Jews. They were monotheists with such reverence for the supreme holiness of one true creator God that they dare not speak his name aloud. This is a kind of ancestral reverence that's sort of lost on modern American sensibility. But somehow they came to believe that the God of their ancestors, the God of their people, the creator God of the universe had become a lowly human being and not even like an emperor or a supernatural kind of gladiator, but a poor peasant stonemason from some obscure village in a backwoods corner of the empire and who died humiliatingly. Jesus did claim to be the Messiah, that's true, but then he constantly deflated and defied all expectations for what the Messiah was supposed to be, which was a sort of triumphant military conqueror who would overthrow the Roman oppressor and reinstall the theocratic nation of Israel. And this perplexing conundrum wasn't invented by Christians to you know, sell copies of the case for Christ or something like this. this. This is an actual question of history. With everything stacked against such a thing happening... How in the world did these people ever come to believe Jesus was God? And the answer now, and the answer then, is this. The tomb is empty. Jesus' followers believed that he died and that God raised him back to life, which vindicated and validated everything that he said and did. And the apostles, the early disciples of Jesus, they died rather than waver on this truth. 
With nothing to gain but persecution and death, Jesus' followers, who would have known for sure if he had or had not been raised, refused to budge on their claim that he did. Which is really, really weird, to be clear. People will fight to the death for lies that make them rich or powerful, sure. But this claim posed no such benefits. People will persist in the worldviews given to them at birth because of indoctrination and leaving them as scary or alienating. But this claim was not indoctrination. It turned their worldview upside down. Unwell individuals will cling to myths to affirm what they want to believe. But this claim was made by an entire group of people who would have known for sure if it were not true. So... For an entire group of very different people to insist that Jesus came back to life with no money or power at stake, only the opposite, even when it went against everything they were taught to believe and when they could have verified whether or not it was true, that is pretty weird. Now, we all live in the Portland metro area, give or take. So imagine this. Imagine if during one of you know, Portland's many seasons of civil unrest over the last few years where sort of uh, radicalized political groups all congregate in one place to express their really extreme views. D during one of the sort of protest turned riots, a group of armed alt-right white supremacists suddenly in a moment threw down their, their flags and weapons and said, we have all just seen a vision of space aliens that gave us a cosmic revelation. We now see that all people are equal. We confess the evil of our ways. We renounce all our political allegiances, and we pledge ourselves forever to the xenomorph, the perfect organism, you know. <laughs> and then, and that's not all, and then until their last breath, they would not budge on this claim. None of them. They lose their jobs. They're made laughing stocks. They're subject to constant ridicule and death threats. And they will not recant their story of alien intervention. Now, you might not believe personally that an entire alt-right militia was contacted by an alien presence. But you would have to admit, that's really weird. Why are they doing that? <laughs> And that historical conundrum is at the heart of Christianity and what we believe about God. See, all religions recognize that the world and the people in it are not as they should be. In Judaism, for example, one can atone for their inevitable wrongdoing in life through a righteous life of prayer and good works. In Islam, you have a path to paradise through the five pillars. In Hinduism, there's the sort of the stockpiling of karma to reunite with the Brahmin. In Buddhism, there's enlightenment through the eightfold path. Or in you know, Scientology, one works to clear nefarious soul implants through the process of elevating your thetan levels. But the Christian story is very different. In the Christian story, yes, Humanity is bent terribly out of shape and away from God. But in the Bible, God comes to humanity in Jesus, and he rescues them before humanity has a chance to even try making anything right. So this is the, the, the Bible's theology of God. This is the story of God, that Jesus is what God has to say and that what Jesus said was true. And we know this because the tomb is empty and because we continue to encounter him by his spirit and in his coming kingdom. The empty tomb is more than the validation of Jesus of Nazareth and the vindication of Jesus. It is a beautiful picture of the God who saves there is one true creator God. He is the only true God, different than and above all other gods, and he is the only God that saves humankind from the awful predicament of suffering and death and sin before we could even love him back.
And yes, this very big, very awesome God, he is all the omnis, you know. He's omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. He's omniscient, meaning he knows everything there is to know. He's omnipresent, meaning there's nowhere you can go where God is not. And sure, I get it, those concepts are dense and pretty complicated, and they require nuance and unpacking. But for now, here's the bottom line. God is, well, God. And many of us, myself absolutely included, struggled with the idea of an imposing, monolithic, holy God, the omni-God. God seemed to be, at least in one season of my life, near unknowable in his bigness. So, some of us inched closer to the seemingly more knowable Jesus, you know, the compassionate Jesus, gentle and lowly, the one who invites and blesses little kids and who is oft depicted with a lamb draped over his shoulders, the good shepherd Jesus. And we made less room for the incredible, fiery, holy God because we can't understand that guy, this guy with the lamb, he makes more sense. But watch this. Now, one more time, turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 6, and this is where we'll land for the evening. Isaiah chapter 6, feel free to consult the table of contents. This is one of my favorite stories in the Hebrew scriptures. It is about the prophet Isaiah. He's in the temple, and he experiences this incredible vision of God. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And now my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So this is that familiar picture, the incredible, mind-shattering, cosmic reality of a holy God. The temple shakes, there's smoke, but the story has a twist. Keep reading, verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for and then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Isaiah knows and admits that he is unworthy to stand before the one true God. He's unclean, he says. The majesty and magnitude of God are so overwhelming that just to stand before him, he can't help but to shout, I am ruined. And there are two baffling things about what happens next. God does not say, hey, well, don't misunderstand me. I'm not, I'm not actually this mind-shattering, cosmic, holy, unique being. And you're all good. Don't even worry about it. God does not say, oh, don't be so hard on yourself. You're not unclean. You're not ruined. With God there in all his magnitude and Isaiah there in all his uncleanness, God comes to Isaiah, touches him, takes his guilt away, and makes him clean. Isaiah doesn't do anything. He just gets cleansed by the voluntary goodness of the God that moments prior brought Isaiah to terror and woe with his unfathomable holiness. This God is unique in all the world. And the response 
What happens when God makes someone clean? I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. The response is obedience, devotion to the God of supreme glory and holiness who is also the God of supreme love and salvation forever and ever. Amen. The holy God. Holy is a word that just means unique. That's not all it means, but that's a great synonym. Unique in all the universe. Now, you and I are not all-powerful or all-knowing. We're not all anything except broken. Nothing in the created order is similar to God in his scope or glory or majesty or holiness. Humans, they like to put God on trial. It's been happening all the way back to the Hebrew scriptures to today. We like to sort of talk back to God, to call him into question. And don't misunderstand me. Hopefully you guys know me well enough to know that that's not all bad. You should ask questions. Doubt is normal and healthy in your discipleship to Jesus. God is not insecure. He can handle your confusion and your sincere wrestling with all of this. That's also all across the pages of the scriptures. You think God doesn't understand that it's hard to be a human being? He knows better than you do. But... Putting God on trial eventually wears out because God is God. He is the supreme, authoritative, holy, unique in all the universe, relational being that created the heavens and the earth, and you are not. I am not. As a father, I want to be, on my best day, a compassionate, patient, understanding parent to my three kids. But also, right now anyway, while they're little, I just know more than they do about most things. Not everything, but most things. I know them better than they know themselves. I know more about life in the world and what's best, but they don't always understand that. Now, my authority over my kids is vested in both my superior wisdom that I've been here longer and in my role and position as their father. And, more importantly, in my love for them, which is made manifest in my desire to do them good in both the short and long term. And because their welfare is my responsibility, and because listening to me has a very real, very crucial ramification on their safety, long-term development, all that, I enforce my authority over them. Now, they don't always understand that arrangement and why it matters just yet, but it's on me to enforce it anyway. So frustrating though it may be for them, Abby and I don't grant our kids complete autonomy over things like their wardrobes or diets or schedules or habits while they're little tiny people. Not because we want to stamp out their autonomy and creativity and stifle their joy, but because we know what's best and they just don't yet. And we are the authorities in our home, not them. In the same way, God is not our equal. He is not our peer. And yes, God chooses to come near to us with intimacy and affection and gentle kindness. He chooses to reveal himself to you so that you can know who he is. He is father in the language of the scriptures and he is friend. But he is also infinite cosmic perfection. And he made all this up. He knows how life and the universe work best, not us. And that's good news, not bad news. The only reason we know God in the first place is because God chose to make himself known to us. And this is something that we call the doctrine of revelation. Now get this, God didn't have to do that. He could have hidden himself from us. 
He could have set the universe in motion and then sort of stepped back and observed from afar. He could have made himself utterly incomprehensible like a a human being to an ant. Or he could have deceived us for his own entertainment. But he didn't, not in the story of the scriptures. He chose to make himself known to us, and this is called divine revelation. Now, theologians distinguish between two types of divine revelation. Bear with me for just another few minutes. We're going somewhere with this. First, there's general revelation. C.S. Lewis argued that human beings have sort of an innate, inborn longing for stuff like morality and equity and justice. And that, he said, is God's self-disclosure in our wiring and our disposition as human beings, the moral longing in our souls. And then there's also this, all this, the universe, volcanoes and seashells and platypi and sunsets and cloud formations, the incredible biological awe overflowing from the world around us. All of that is general revelation. It draws our hearts and our minds to the why behind everything. But then there's special revelation. Now, the difference is that general revelation is, for the most part, available to all people and sort of automatically. Special revelation, on the other hand, is revealed in the unique and specific work of God. The scriptures call special revelation the Word of God, which, like we said earlier, is a term that's used to describe Jesus or the Bible itself or God's speaking voice documented in the text, or it refers to just sort of prophetic truth spoken on God's behalf. All of that is the Word of God. Within Christian orthodoxy, special revelation has primacy over general revelation. Why? Because we're broken by our own sinfulness. Whatever God reveals in the generic sense through volcanoes and platypi, our minds and our perception and our thinking and feeling, our interpretation of the universe can all conspire to corrupt the way we understand God's word. Easy example If you're a part of Van City Church, I am one of your pastors. As the pastor of teaching and creative vision, the greater part of my job is just to teach Bible and theology. But when I get up here and teach, I am not inspired by God and authoritative. Just so you know, if if that hasn't been clear, if you've been here for a couple years, you figured that out right away. Uh, I know that I can be wrong, but I've never climbed up here on a Sunday night and said things that I already knew were wrong. Uh, Believe me, I haven't done that. I am doing the very best that I can, and I believe everything that I say up here, but I'm human, so I must be wrong about something sometimes. That's why we have the scriptures and the Holy Spirit and one another the community of faith. That's why there's a teaching team, a a team of leaders who read over every single teaching that I write or that anyone writes, and they hold us accountable for what we say, and they offer correction and encouragement. Your own thinking and feeling, your interpretation of the world around you cannot, in and of themselves, unlock specific divine truth because we perceive reality through a cracked lens, so to speak. In her book on doctrine, Dr. Beth Felker-Jones writes this, Even though God reveals himself to us in creation and our consciences, sin leads us to misinterpret this revelation and distort it into something false. With scripture as our guide, we can look to general revelation and begin to interpret it correctly. Even though the whole of creation testifies to God, without God's special revelation, we are unable to truly know him. In order to know God, we will have to recognize the particular way he has revealed himself in history. If you want to know the Christian God, you have to go through the Bible because God has revealed himself to us in the scriptures. And in the scriptures, 
God is triune, meaning, stay with me on this, there's one true God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Again, this from Beth Jones. The one true God, the only God, exists eternally in three persons. The same three persons we see at work when Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River by his cousin John. Here, the Father speaks, the Son emerges from the water, and the Spirit descends like a dove. All three persons of the triune God are active in this moment as at every moment. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And in total continuity with the Old Testament, there is only one God. God did not become Trinity at some point in time. Rather, God is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If we want to know the truth about God, we will have to turn to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. God exists eternally in relationship. Jesus himself described the Trinitarian dynamic this way. I am the way, Jesus said, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father or God except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. That's an incredible thing to say. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Jesus goes on to say this. Listen to this. Yikes. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So why, then, are we called Christians or Christians? Because we know through the Scriptures that the ultimate, truest, most accurate revelation of the only Creator God is in the man called Jesus of Nazareth. The author of Hebrews himself put it this way, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets in many times, various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things and through whom also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. And listen to this, the exact representation of His being sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So we go to the scriptures to know God, and the scriptures authoritatively attest to the supremacy of Jesus as the exact representation of the one true creator God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus, the empty tomb, God is awesome and holy, and he is the kind shepherd who saves. Okay, deep breath. You guys okay? Yeah. All right, thank you very much. Now, to end, I get it. Even for the basics, that was a lot. And this series is just about 
is not just about having the right information intellectually. What the church has historically described as orthodoxy, which is just a word that means right belief, should always be one side of a coin, the other side being orthopraxy or right practice. And those of you who have traveled in church circles for any amount of time likely know well enough that there can be plenty of people concerned with knowing the right things about God and the Bible, but who aren't actually a whole lot like Jesus at all. In the scriptures, the idea of belief, that word is used a lot, but it is never a static intellectual position the way it is in modern English, as in like, I believe in my mind that, you know, that God or ghosts or Santa Claus exist. In the story of God, belief happens in and is carried out by the mind, the body, and the soul. It is faith realized by practice. In the Bible, there is not belief that happens in the mind that is not also evidenced by lifestyle, which is why Jesus said plainly again and again, you will be able to tell if they are my disciples. You will know them, he said, by their fruit or by their lifestyle, what they do. The response to God's incredible holiness and his scandalous saving grace is, here I am, send me. Obedient love. So if God who we believe is who we believe he is, all the omnis, all the self-sacrificial love revealed in Jesus and his life and death and resurrection, what is our appropriate response? Specifically, as you write or rewrite or reevaluate your rule of life for the year ahead, consider starting with this. First, to know God through something Jesus called abiding. These are the direct, deliberate practices of uh, abiding in the vine, as Jesus called it, remaining connected to Jesus. They include everything from morning prayer to scripture reading to worship music, daily office, which is a recurring time in the day to recenter yourself with prayer, the examine, which is a practice we've been through of praying through the day's events before God, things like Sabbath or fasting or silence and solitude or, or more. My current rule personally is for morning prayer every single day, which could be contemplation, it could be practicing the presence of God, it could be imaginative prayer. It's always at least intercession, which is me talking to God and asking God for things. I read the scriptures in the morning, I do listening prayer, and I journal out the experience, whatever I'm hearing or thinking in light of scripture and prayer. Later in the day, my watch beeps at 2 p.m. and I pray and recenter for a moment, a few minutes, whatever. I have community every week and we pray together. We we walk through the practices together. I pray and worship with you guys every single Sunday. Every month, I spend a day fasting, and every year, I spend a day in silence and solitude. Now, a lot of you guys are already doing some or several things from that list. You're at church, and that's a huge thing. That's already one of them. If you're just getting started, our recommendation for a baseline practice is to simply commit to a daily time of quiet prayer and Bible reading, even if it's very brief and very simple to start off. And to church on Sunday, every single day with the scriptures, with praying, and every single week with the community of God's people. And then finally, the other category to consider is the mind. Now, this has to do with the kinds of habits that occupy mental real estate and shape what you believe and what you do. What we give our attention to shapes the person we are becoming, for better or worse. So ask, are the things to which I devote my time and attention likely making me more aware of and in touch with God's presence, or are they distracting me from it or numbing me to it? 
Now, these practices include things like, again, Scripture in the morning, studying the Bible, reading theology, coming to church on Sunday, listening to sermons, gratitude, writing out a digital rule of life, which is um, learning how you will and won't interact with your phone or computer, um, social media, that kind of thing, taking something like a digital Sabbath time off from devices every week, a daily limit on device use, you know, locking yourself out of certain things on your phone. So there's obvious overlap with the previous abiding category. My current rule is, again, daily reading from the scriptures and prayer. Um, I read Bible and theology throughout the week, but it's my job, so, you know, the bonus for me. And uh, as my digital rule of life, I keep my smartphone as a dumb phone, which means that I don't have a web browser on my phone. I don't have any social media or news feeds or work email on my phone, and I've locked myself out of the app store, so I can't get them. Only Abby has the code if I need to, you know, update the app that stops working that tells me how to get from here to my uh, house because uh, something in my brain is broken when it comes to directions. Um, every week I spend Sunday here with you guys in worship and prayer and study, listening to God's Spirit. If you're just beginning, our recommended baseline practice is to disengage from devices for a set time on a daily or weekly basis. Again, you can start small, see what it's like, figure out what works, and to set specific time limits on device use, and to commit to a specific set routine of regularly taking in truth through reading and podcasting, sermons, studying the scriptures, however you want to do that. Start small, take a step, adjust your rule as you discover what works best for your season of life and stage of discipleship. Don't overwhelm yourself with something that you can't possibly sustain, but start small and grow into a bigger rule. Now, I get why people want to know what our church believes. And there is value and practicality in a statement of faith that clarifies and unites our church, something that we can point to and say, these are those things. You can read them right there on the page. And by the end of this series, that thing will exist. But what I really want is a church rule of life for our orthodoxy to give way to orthopraxy. That even with all our wrestling and questions and doubts and failure and falling down and getting up and working all of this out in the flawed but beautiful mess of community, we would become a people more and more over time who are learning to live out what we believe, knowing why we believe it. So that we could say, here we are, send us. Let's pray and ask God's Spirit to empower us to act in loving obedience and faithfulness. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.